Morning, Southridge. Glad to be here with you today. My name is David Harita. I'm Regional Director for Fellowship Pacific, so that's part of our family of churches. More importantly to you, I'm a member here at Southridge and get to appreciate the ministry of the church as a whole and our pastors in particular. So glad to continue with you in the series today looking at Daniel chapter 7. And if you've got your Bible in whatever form that is, please feel free to look that up. We're going to be reading that together in a minute. I think we tend to be people who love to predict. In fact, we tend to have a prediction addiction. We love to look at things, to bet on the future, to imagine what the future looks like. And we do so in some unimaginably stupid ways, from very sophisticated or computer simulations through to things like looking at when the groundhog pokes its little head up. Uh, we start pretty young predicting the future. Some of you may remember taking an apple and twisting the core, or I guess not the core, the stem of the apple while reciting the alphabet, hoping that'll give you the initials of the person you're going to marry. Or maybe getting a flower and tossing off petals going, uh, she loves me, she loves me not, or he loves me, he loves me not, whatever that may be. And it seems like a ridiculous way to live. And yet we still do it in a variety of different ways. I once won not that long ago, actually, a hundred lottery tickets. And the irony of it is I won that in a draw. I won these hundred lottery tickets. I sat down with my family, so my wife, three kids, and we went through all 100 lottery tickets. They were all scratch and win, going through, seeing what we would win, imagining that we were going to win a lot of money from these hundred tickets. So we ended up with $20. Turned out it was a really great way to teach your kids that betting is not a great way to live your life. Nevertheless, over 19 million Canadians gambled online in 2020. And during the year, there was $31 billion in profit that was earned by the betting industry in one year alone. So we can join millions of Canadians. We can bet on almost anything. You could bet on who the next Doctor Who will be on television. You can bet on ferret bingo. You can bet on a, the World Bog Snorkeling Competition. In fact, you can get, which are great odds, 500 to 1 odds today on the fact that the world will end in 2021. So that seems like really good odds until you realize just how hard that will be to collect if you win. And yet those odds exist. We have this incurable desire to know the future, to predict it in one way or another. And Daniel 7 that we're looking at today in the book of Daniel, is kind of a switch to a different mode of writing. The first six chapters have been kind of historical about Daniel in Babylon. Now we switch and look specifically at some of the visions that he's had. And it's one of those passages, as you'll see going through Daniel, where people have predicted what does it mean? What could it mean? What's it mean for our time since the church began? And in this vision, in Daniel chapter 7, there are competing realities. In a sense, there's two different pictures of the future. And the question for us is, which of those pictures do we focus on? Which one do we believe in? Which one do we buy in? Both of the pictures of the future are true, but which one do you and I see most clearly? It's an important question. The kind of writing that we get in Daniel chapter 7 is called apocalyptic writing. That means it's images, it's pictures, it's metaphors for events that occurred both in Daniel's time and occur also in the future. 
Many people throughout the history of the church are quite convinced they know exactly what all those images mean. In fact, they have argued for them very vociferously on a regular basis, and you can find books about them, you can see movies made about them, about what is going on in these different images, because we love to predict. And so I want to be fair and give you your shot today. So read this with me and try and imagine what is this, in fact, talking about in our world today. So Daniel chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 to 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and it devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So, think about that. Everything clear so far? You got that figured out? Well, let me give you a suggestion. It is a wrong approach normally when you look at apocalyptic literature, which is what this is called, to begin with a guessing game of what means what, trying to match up organizations and nations and people to particular images in apocalyptic writing. But people, as I've mentioned, have always done so and argued about it. Generally, in history, you've looked at the historical approach of Daniel. This was viewed as the first kingdom was Babylon, the second was Medo-Persia, the third kingdom was Greece, led by Alexander the Great, and the fourth by Romans. That was the original view. And then there's been views throughout history, repeating, changing views of who this actually could have been. So people have thought that the little horn guy was Napoleon. They've been pretty sure, guaranteed sure, it was Adolf Hitler. The ten horns were, the ten kings were told in verse 24 and verse 17 of Daniel 7, that represented, people have said, NATO or the European Union. All of those kinds of things. But here's the thing. It's in the nature of apocalyptic literature that if we spend too much time on every one of these little images, we miss the main point altogether. We don't get the main point. A couple of weeks ago, Craig Murphy reminded us that we need to figure out what is the author's intended purpose. What does the author want to say? And in this writing, there's a meaning for us today. And there was a meaning for Daniel and the Israelites in his own time. And simply put, it would be this, when your life is disrupted, which is what's going on in Daniel in the name of this series, when your life is disrupted, choose your focus. 
choose where you're going to look. Or another way of talking about it is that we survive tough times by keeping the end in mind, remembering the end. If you can't see beyond today, we are frequently going to get discouraged. If all you do is look around, read the newspaper, see what's going on, look at pandemics, look at all that stuff, you're going to get discouraged. You've got to keep the end in mind. But if we can see that, if we can see that conclusion of the story, then we can live through the middle. We can hang in there through the middle. So learn this, and Daniel brings this point home over and over in this book throughout his life and in his visions. A short-term focus, thinking short-term, is an absolute guaranteed source of discouragement. If all we do is think in the short-term, short-range, we're going to be discouraged. There's no way around that. So let me review the context for you. So Daniel 7 is occurring. There's a literary context, and there's also a real-life context. The literary context, Daniel has reminded us through a whole lot of series of events with kings like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, now Belshazzar, that even when we think we're in control, when we have the power we think to determine the outcomes, it's a mistake. You don't. You never had control. Ultimately, God's sovereign, God's in control, so don't deceive ourselves. Don't start to think um, that I'm important. Don't lie about our relative importance, how significant we are in determining the outcome of the world around us and the world in general. Don't begin to boast or to boast in our achievements as though God had no part in them. That literary context has occurred throughout Daniel, throughout the historical sections and the things that occurred. And there's also a real-life context. We're told this vision, verse 1, it tells us this, this vision occurs in the first year of Belshazzar. So we're told as well, if we read through the beginning part of Daniel, that that's right between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And God's people, as Daniel is writing, had gone through trauma after trauma with ever-increasing despondency, ever-increasing discouragement about what life was bringing them. This was God's people that had been given God's promised land and they'd been deported, exiled, threatened, martyred. Now they have a new king in Belshazzar whose belief system makes Nebuchadnezzar look like a raving fundamentalist. It was not good news for them. It looked like their hope had been crushed. And this vision in Daniel is not about insider events or insider information on events that are hundreds of years in the future. It had a message for people then to give encouragement, and it has a message for people now to give encouragement. You can't just think short-term. And it's not as simple as equating images with our favorite targets. We could do that, of course. We could read this first part of Daniel, and it would be pretty obvious, I think. So if you ask, who's the eagle? Who's eager? Well, that's obviously, obviously the U.S. It ties it with a lion. That's probably Britain. Those two are somehow working together. Uh, that's pretty important. The bear? Who's the bear? The bear's super obvious. You should have got that already. The bear's Russia. It's obviously Russia. Third kingdom? Well, it's fast like a leopard. Most people look at that and say that's leopard tanks. That's obviously Germany. So you've got the U.S. and Britain. You've got uh, Russia. You've got Germany, the fourth most powerful nation. That's represented here? Canada. It's obviously Canada. You can tell it. Just read the text. It's ferocious with large teeth. What is it? A beaver. I think it's a beaver. It's probably a beaver. We're told, in fact, that it had ten horns. That's like the ten provinces. Canada. Right? 
obvious as it can be. We could do that, and that's pretty much a waste of time. That's not what the message of the text is. It's simply this, that left to itself, the world is dominated by a destructive, chaotic evil. Bad things happen. And these different images of kingdoms are growing impact and pictures of successive human nations and kingdoms that are each after power, each violent, each evil in their own way. We're told in verse 2 right away that there's churning water. And even by Daniel's time, that churning water was a picture of a storm. It was a picture of destruction. It said things are in trouble. There's chaos that's emerging. And each of the four beasts that we're told about were like nothing found in God's creation. They evoke fear, horror, even revulsion. We don't like to think about them with four wings or two heads or whatever the image may be. And the pattern of these kingdoms, I hope there's a reminder for you, it kind of, you felt that in your head as you read it, reminds us of Daniel's vision in chapter 2. Successive evil kingdoms that continue till the end of time. The lion and the eagle are proud, they're strong, they create fear in their prey. The bear is ferocious, it's voracious. The leopard is fast and it's dangerous. The fourth kingdom is frightening, it's terrifying. We're told that it's characterized by pride. It gets even scarier when we go on and we read the explanation of it in verse 23. Daniel says this, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come out from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Scary-sounding stuff, which it's meant to be, because it's scary stuff. What's clear, what this message makes clear, is that there are forces in the world that are hostile to God. There are things going on in the world around us that are not what God wants, and they are powerful, they are destructive, and they are real. It's not some imaginary kind of thing. And while sometimes I think for us in North America, uh, we sit back and start, about talking, start talking about persecution and things, but it's really pretty small potatoes relative to human history and what persecution really looked like. And so while sometimes we might have a hard time relating to what Daniel's talking about. It's no stretch at all for Christians in China. It's not difficult for Christians in North Korea, in Iran, in Egypt, in Sri Lanka, in many places in the world. Because critical for us to understand from this passage in Daniel is that there is a spiritual war going on, a spiritual fight that is very, very real. And when the world around us chooses the world over God, when they choose to ignore evil, the spiritual fight is lost and there is a corresponding loss in the physical world. The spiritual world is not separate from it. When we ignore God in the spiritual world and that spiritual fight is getting lost, there is real pain for real people in the world that we see every day. Every time that evil triumphs, real people get hurt. Real people get hurt, and that is not an illusion. That is not 
some vision of the future that's left you dreaming. What could that be? What is that kingdom? Saying, no, there's hostile things and they get worse and they worse get worse. And it is a scary deal because evil unrestrained becomes evil that multiplies. And we see that here in Daniel. And we are deaf, dumb, and blind, and we are terribly self-deceived if we don't expect problems. Now, let me just take that out of kind of big picture for a second. I hope you know when you look around you in the world, as I do, and we seem to have to learn it over and over, that real people get hurt. There's destruction for life, for people in their lives when sin occurs, when we make individual choices to sin, even in the small level. It's not small for our life, of course, but it is small in the scope of the entire world. When an affair happens in a marriage, real people get hurt. Spouses get hurt. Extended family gets hurt. Children get hurt. Friends get hurt. When there's drug abuse, people get hurt. When there's pedophilia, real people get hurt. When there are lies in relationships, people get hurt. There is a long, long list where we've all seen up close and personal in our own lives and the lives of people around us how real people get hurt by real sin. It isn't something that's out there and distant from our life. There's a real spiritual battle going on. And it doesn't take much imagination, incidentally, to imagine what sinners bound together in a common cause can do. So whether it's nationalism or racism or denominationalism or any ism you might choose to think of, there's an endless list of appalling things that people do to people. Sin and evil are real. Sin and evil hurt people. And Daniel is saying, and in his vision he's receiving, look, there's kingdom after kingdom and they get worse and worse. Just as an aside, I find it interesting, so part of my job is working with a wide variety of churches, but I find it interesting when people start looking for the pristine, perfect church where the people in it have no faults, they have no problems, they have no pain, they would never hurt, they would never sin, there's no relational issues. If you find that church, let me know. But if you find that church, that church is either sitting out this war or they are terribly artificial in their relationships. Because in the real world, there is real sin where real people get hurt. And that's the battle we're involved in. The desire for personal glory, for power, for control that's so prevalent in the book of Daniel, in Nebuchadnezzar, in Darius, in Cyrus, in Belshazzar, those are things that are true in our lives as well and they are amazingly destructive. So that's not super encouraging. And sometimes that's all we see. Sometimes we see that short-term, immediate future, the world that's in front of us, and that's a real world. Daniel's picture is telling a true story, but it becomes so discouraging. And I think all of us at times fight that discouragement, that struggle uh, to see beyond that where evil is triumphing, where people are acting destructively, where every potential for good seems to get twisted. When that's true, that's when we most need to change our focus. When we're starting to feel that discouragement, that depression pushing on our heart, our soul, that's most when we need to see beyond the immediate. That's most when we need to base our vision for the future on eternity rather than just the short term. We need to see something different. Because while a short term focus guarantees discouragement, 
a long-term, that is to say, an eternal focus, changes everything. It changes everything. And Daniel's vision, thankfully, in verse 9, switches entirely. It gives you a second worldview, a second picture, a second focus. So take a moment when you're getting discouraged and take a breath and refocus. If you're looking in your Bible, you may even want to draw, draw a line between verse 8 and verse 9 because it starts in verse 9, as I looked, and that's a big picture change. He looked somewhere different. He focused on something different. And this is what he says, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him and thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nation and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Refocus. When you look in the world around you, Daniel says there's two things. They're both true. Where are you looking? If you look at the world, you get all that stuff I just talked about, kingdom after kingdom, evil things. You'll see that and live your life in discouragement. Or you can look somewhere else. You can look longer term. You can have an eternal perspective. So note the first phrase. It's an important, important phrase. As I looked at that world, when I saw that thing around me, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The time is coming. Time is coming when God will set things right. We look at people, we look at nations, we look at movements and we start shaking our heads. But the Ancient of Days, Daniel says, will sit on his throne. That time is coming. We get worried about pandemics, about vaccines, about public health orders, about parents in care homes, about politics, about shifting world powers. We start to feel you know, tremendous injustice in the world and unfairness and unrelenting evil and it doesn't feel right. It starts to get so heavy on our soul. We've been you know, abused or treated poorly by somebody we trusted. We've been cheated in business. We've been abused by someone in authority. We've been wounded deeply by somebody that we loved and it starts to chew us up inside and we think life is never going our way. It's disruption after disruption after disruption. We develop this resentful spirit, a bitter heart. We build higher and higher walls and fortifications around our life to keep that out because, because we're looking at today and that's all we're seeing. And Daniel says, no, draw a line. Look, you're, you're not wrong. The world's a hard place, but it's not going to stay that way forever. Thrones were set in place 
and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Pause. Push hold in your life. Take a breath. Push that stuff out and say, that's not where I'm going to look. That's not where I'm going to live. That's not where every day is going to take place for me. The Ancient of Days is going to take his seat on the throne. The day is coming, a day worth focusing on, when the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord God Almighty, the Ancient of Days will sit on his throne. Look there. Focus there. Then Daniel goes on and he zooms in close up of God on his throne. In verse 9, he says, His hair is white as snow, the hair of his head is white like wool. The Ancient of Days is absolutely pure. Everything about him clean and white. There is no evil in him. There is no unholiness in God. Throughout eternity past, God has never done a thing, never spoken a word, never entertained a thought that was not true, that was not good, that was not noble. And for God, who is on his throne, that dark destructiveness of evil that Daniel just talked about is going to encounter the unrelenting purity of God. And it will be crushed. It will be crushed. And Daniel goes on in verse, second half of verse 9 and 10, he says, His throne is flaming with fire. Its wheels are all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open because the Ancient of Days is not absolutely pure, but he is supremely powerful. And he gives this image of fire, of rivers of fire, which is a continuing image of God. So you have the burning bush that you see with Moses and you see the pillar of fire leading Israel and you see fire called down from heaven by Elijah. And Daniel comes and uses that image to talk about the power of God because he is a God of grace. Definitely. But we should never forget that he is supremely also a God of power. It's why Hebrews 12 will say have reverence because your God is a consuming fire. It's why C.S. Lewis or write that God is good, but he is not safe. Don't think that he is. Two reasons why this is really important to keep in mind. First is because at the end of time, when God sits on throne, his throne, absolutely pure, supremely powerful, he incinerates evil. He destroys it. He says in verse 11, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. He goes on in verse 26 and he says, The court will sit and his power, the power of this fourth beast, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Three statements in a row. Completely destroyed forever. Never to return as strong as evil looks, God isn't challenged by any force in the universe. God is not challenged by Satan or by evil. We're told in 1 Peter that God is not slow in keeping his promise, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish. So we shouldn't mistake patience for passivity or weakness. When God decides it's over, when God says this is done, time is fulfilled, when God comes and thrones are set in place and the ancient takes Ancient of days takes his seat. There's no big power struggle. There's not a debate or a discussion. It's not like a contest to see he'll win. It's not a hockey game or win to see who scores the most goals. There is no contest when God sits on his throne. There's a winner and the outcome is not in doubt. 
so God will incinerate evil. Second thing to remember is at the end of the time when God sits on his throne, when the throne is set in place, the Ancient of Days takes his seat, then we're told Jesus returns. So verse 13 and 14, such a great passage. And as I read it, let it kind of roll through your mind. It should bring back some memories of something else because it's also the passage that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 to refer to himself at the end of the age, Daniel's vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Time comes when Jesus returns in both judgment and mercy. It's why Christ's followers, people who have given their lives to Jesus, his disciples, wholly devoted people have no fear. We don't need to be afraid of that because while we are impure, while we're inadequate and in big trouble without him, we are completely pure, totally adequate, and no eternal trouble because of him. Jesus Christ is our Savior, seen in this vision of Daniel many, many, many years ago. God's incarnate Son was born, he lived, he was crucified, he rose again, and at that moment the battle was over, the battle was done, it was complete. He redeemed us from our sin, we're told, the just for the unjust, that God will sit on his throne in his court, the books will be opened, and on that account page it will be stamped paid in full because Jesus is our Savior, has redeemed us, has paid our price. And Daniel says that's what you're looking for. That's the future you look at. That's the dream. Don't look at the evil around you. It's there, but it will not be there forever because the Ancient of Days is coming. He will sit on his throne. A life that is focused on God, committed to Christ, is destined to spiritual life, not death. Destined to eternal victory, not defeat to a place in a kingdom that will never be destroyed and will have no part with evil. You will never have to see it again. A person who chooses to focus on God, on his Son and his Spirit is a person who can be encouraged in life, a person who can be encouraged even through the process of death. We don't have to live our life in discouragement. So whether it's the direct evil of Satan, whether it's evil perpetuated by people, on people, whether it's the pervasive effects of evil, like grief, loneliness, sickness, pain. Daniel tells us thrones will be set in place, the Ancient of Days will take his seat, and it'll be over. It'll be done. Two worldviews, two different ways of focusing and seeing the world. One is short-term, one is long-term, and it changes everything. It's a discussion that has a very concrete reality. It makes a difference in everything we're doing. So I'm talking about, we're talking about big visions from the past, big dreams and imagining things about eternity in the future. It seems so far away. But here's what's true. The end we believe in determines the choices that we make. The end we believe in determines the choices we make. And to a large degree, I think, the opposite is true. The choices we make today determines the end or shows the end we believe in.
So the decisions you made yesterday, the decisions you make today, the decisions you make tonight with your family, with friends, in everything that you do is showing us, showing you what you already believe, what you already know. And if we believe that evil triumphs, then we have no problem joining in. And it's telling us we're seeing the world around us. We're taking a short-term view of the world. And if we keep joining in, it's simply telling us that we don't believe that the thrones will be set in place, that God will take his seat, that the court will be seated, and the books will be opened. It's telling us that we don't believe in that day when the clouds, Son of Man, will come in the clouds of heaven, approach the ancients of days, be given authority and a kingdom that will never end. But if we believe in an absolutely pure and supremely powerful God who does sit on the throne, then our lives will be substantially different. Your life, my life, will be different. And our choices will be made with that end in mind. We're incurable predictors. We have an addiction to prediction. Fact is, we are continually betting our life, our livelihood, our health, our future, on our prediction, on our vision of the future. We do it all the time. You're doing it right now, this time of year. You're thinking about RSPs and the future and how long you live and how much money you need to save. We think early in our life about what job we're going to get when we finish school or if a job will be available. We think about it when we meet people and ask, is this a particular person who'd be a great spouse for me, a friend that I could make for a lifetime? Both of Daniel's visions of the future are true. One of them is short-term. One of them is long-term. We don't have to predict them. We don't have to guess at them. But we do have to choose which end we will focus on. We do have to make a choice. Are we going to live for the short-term or live for the long-term? And are we going to spend our life looking only at what we see right around us? Or our life looking towards eternity? Which finale are we living for? So ask yourself this as we end this passage and you look at Daniel chapter 7. What do you see most clearly? And truthfully, most of us struggle to see the throne room of heaven most frequently. I encourage you from Daniel 7, looking at a group of people, an entire nation, that desperately needed to hear from God that his future, his promises, would still be fulfilled. Look at it from that way and then apply it to yourself. Which one are you focusing on? Because it is nothing less a question than this. In real life terms, what are you betting your life on? Thanks for being here with us today. I hope that you have a great week. In Southridge, you go out and live for God and get to see a focus that takes you past today, past issues of pandemic, vaccine, all that stuff, and you see God in the throne room, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, and you rejoice in it and the encouragement it can give. Go have a great week. Thanks.